0: Great. Thanks so much, Mandy, for reading that for us. Good evening, everyone. So we've come to the last in our trustworthy sayings, and um, it's going to be quite a challenging message. Um, I certainly found it challenging preparing for it. Um, some, some tough stuff in this particular section, so I hope you're up for a challenge. Um, but let's see, let's see how we get on. There's a modern-day parable called "Hinds' Feet on High Places. And in this parable, God, the shepherd, calls a woman called Much Afraid to make a journey into the high country with two companions, Suffering and Sorrow, who the shepherd gives her to help her on her journey. And she's stunned that God should choose two companions like that to help her on this particular journey. I can't go with them, she gasped. I can't, I can't. Oh my shepherd, why do you do this to me? How can I travel in their company? It's more than I can bear. You tell me that the mountain way itself is so steep and difficult that I cannot climb it alone. Then why, oh why, must you make sorrow and suffering, my companions? Couldn't you have given joy and peace to go with me, to strengthen me and encourage me, and help me on this difficult way. I never thought you'd do this to me. And I think many of us have asked a similar question. How could God do this to me? How could God do this to my friend or my daughter or my son or my parents or whoever? How, how could God allow that? Or on a grander scale, um, particularly today, Remembrance Sunday. How can God permit the tragedy of war? Really difficult questions to answer personally and for others. And there are no easy answers. There are certainly none in this passage tonight. But what we do have is a very honest uh, account from Paul to some people who are suffering. And it comes from a place of Paul's own personal suffering. So the context, if you know 2 Timothy and this, this trustworthy saying, is, is set in the context of a dark, damp Roman cell. So Paul is literally suffering for the gospel. It's shortly before his death. It's AD 67. And he's been abandoned by his friends. So he's not just going through a hard time. He's going through a hard time on his own and perhaps not surprisingly suffering is right at the forefront of his mind so um, in the second chapter there are all sorts of allusions to it and plain references as well be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus verse one join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus verse three remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead descended from David this is my gospel for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. And then verse 10, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. And then finally, our trustworthy saying itself from verses 11 to 13. If we died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us if we are faithless he will remain he remains faithful for he cannot disown himself so what did paul mean by those verses and what do those verses mean for us today well most scholars uh, are in agreement that this appears to be an extract from an early christian hymn encouraging believers to stand firm in the face of persecution so paul is writing about a very particular type of suffering I think the main thrust of these verses is clear there are a couple of exceptions that we'll come to shortly but first of all um, I have a bone to pick with Robert Estienne now um, I'd be very surprised if any of you had heard of Robert Estienne before Um, I hadn't Um, And yet some of us depend on his work on a regular and even on a daily basis because it was Robert Estian who first put the verses into our Bible chapters. So when someone says Romans chapter 3 verse 12, Robert Estian, he's the man who did it first. And we've all benefited from that. It, you know, it'd be so much harder, wouldn't it, um, just to kind of... Well, it's in the middle of that chapter there. Uh, it'd be so much harder without those verse numbers. But sometimes, this excellent work that he's done just throws us off balance a little. And I think this is a case here because he splits this trustworthy saying over three verses, but really it's two poetic couplets. So the first couplet is an encouragement. It goes like this. If we died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. So the second phrase in that, the second phrase of the couplet, if we endure, we will also reign with him, is saying the same thing, but in a slightly different way, using different words. In the Old Testament, this is we find this an awful lot in the, the Psalms, it's called poetic parallelism where the poet takes the idea and then repeats it. So it's an an echo of the idea, but using different words. So that's the first couplet. And then the second one, if we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Um, And an extra phrase on the end, for he cannot disown himself. So we have in these two couplets an encouragement and a warning. So let's take a look at them both. So the encouragement first. Paul is writing, as I say, from this place of persecution to a people facing persecution. And he wants to encourage them to keep going, to stick it out, to stand firm in their faith, whatever happens. And so he does that by reminding them of what is promised to those who do stand firm to the end. If we died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure, we'll also reign with him. Well, that seems straightforward enough, doesn't it? Except the little phrase, if we died with him, there's some debate about. I mean, Paul could be referring to physical death, but actually the tense he uses in the Greek refers to something that's done and dusted in the past. And Paul is, of course, writing this letter in in, in the present. And then the parallel thought is about enduring. So it probably doesn't refer to physical death. Second idea is that it's the same death that he refers to in Romans chapter six. There he says, if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. And we refer to this um, death metaphor when we um, conduct a baptismal service. We say there's a a metaphor of dying with Christ and rising with Christ. Well, does it mean that? Well, possibly. Possibly. But I think there's a third and more likely meaning, and it's that Paul is meaning our death to ourself and to safety as we take up our cross and follow Christ. Paul says on one occasion, I die every day. What he means, he's he's taking up his cross. He's dying to himself. He says, I'm always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. In Romans chapter 8, if we're children then we're heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So they're the, the similar thought that's expressed in this couplet about sharing in the suffering, enduring, getting to the end, and then sharing in the glory. So the two phrases of this first couplet conveying a similar thought, that the believer who's died to himself and to his own safety, the believer who endures persecution... As their master endured persecution, can be confident of sharing in Christ's reign. You may remember <clears throat> these words that Jesus spoke as part of the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's the same idea. A couple of weeks ago, I read these words from Simon Gibo. I met with Abdul today. He's a brave man. He used to be in charge of 15 mosques and prided himself in zealously winning Christians over to Islam. He did regular public debates and became troubled by vivid dreams of Jesus calling him. As he studied the Quran and the Bible, he was struck how the Quran talked of guiding in the right way, whilst Jesus said, I am the way. It was so costly when he decided to follow the way. He lost everything, was kicked out of his community, and survived a grenade attack and an armed group of Muslims angry at his apostasy. But he wouldn't flee. He's carried on living humbly, boldly and consistently. He's been offered $20,000 to return to Islam as well as a house, but he's adamant that nothing can woo him as he struggles to provide for his family on the $100 a month we give him. what would you say to Abdul? Should he stick it out? If you can, the person next to you, what would you say to, to, to Abdul and why? Okay, Abdul's heard you. He thanks you for your encouragements, your affirmation. I don't know what you said. We haven't got time to to go around the room tonight. But I think what Paul would have said is what he said in this letter. In effect, Abdul, stick it out. You will live with Christ. You will reign with Christ, so don't give up. Keep going. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. That's the encouragement part of this trustworthy saying, to keep going with the reward at the end promised. But there's also a warning, and this is the bit that is quite tough, I think. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Well, until the fourth line, it looks like we have another couplet But how can he remains faithful mean the same thing as he will also disown us? Well, some commentators insist that it can't. So one writes, the poem has four balancing lines, but in the fourth line it seems to go wrong. And in that going wrong is the heart of its message. Retributive logic gives way before divine grace. In other words, this commentator is saying, we might be faithless, but God will still save us at the end. Well, it might mean that, but I suspect it means this. This is the view that others take. The logic of the Christian hymn, with its two pairs of balancing epigrams, really demands a different interpretation, says one commentator. Or another, faithfulness on his part means carrying out his threats, as well as his promises. So in other words, God is faithful means that God keeps his promises. Whether they are promises to bless or whether they are threats. As surely as he will carry out the one, he will carry out the other. I was reflecting um, earlier today that um, a parent who promises something nice to their son or daughter um, that's lovely... But if they also warn them, they need to follow through. Otherwise, the warning is meaningless. And this is the sense, I believe, in which Paul is saying that God is faithful. He keeps his promises, his promises to bless, but also the accompanying warnings. Righteousness and grace are inseparable. Or as we sang earlier, I think the lion and the lamb, not one or the other. If we disown him, Paul says, he will disown us. And this is an uncomfortable verse. But it's not alone in conveying this message. Jesus himself said it very plainly. Whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Probably not a verse that you've stuck on your fridge to bring you encouragement day after day when you go for the milk to make your coffee. And at this point, we may be feeling a bit theologically twitchy because aren't there other passages in the Bible that talk about a believer not being able to lose his or her salvation? How does this square with that? Well, yes, there are. But there are just as many that include a genuine warning about falling away with real consequences as here. Now, there's a paradox that we haven't got time to go into. But what I want to say is that we mustn't dismiss the warnings just because of the promises. They're both in the book, and they are there for a reason. The warnings are there for a reason. We mustn't just glibly move on. So that's one reason we might be feeling a bit uncomfortable. Another reason is that For some, this might all smack of hell and fire and brimstone, and isn't that all a bit far-fetched? And haven't we gone a bit beyond all of that now to a much more modern, sensible understanding? Haven't we left all that primitive thinking about judgment behind? My answer to that is that it's not for us to pick and choose which bits of the Bible we want to believe If we're believers, if we're followers of Jesus, we're followers of Jesus, not followers of the bits we like and ignoring the bits we don't. If we're a follower, we're a follower. We take, I was going to say, the rough with the smooth, the bits that we like, along with the bits that we find difficult, and we carry them. Today is Remembrance Sunday. This morning we remembered those who lost their lives in conflict and In preparing for this morning, mainly, I think, my mind was drawn to a thought that we don't often say much about at all, probably for obvious reasons. Um, it's, it's, It's the war analogy of a deserter, someone who abandons their military duty without permission, without leave, and without any intent to return. That's a serious matter in the armed forces. So between 1914 and 1924, Death sentences were passed by the British army for serious cases of desertion. And even today, in times of war, it could be punishable by life imprisonment. Now, Paul doesn't shy away from using military metaphors. We have one here in our chapter in verse 3. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. I know some people don't like the military metaphors in the, in the New Testament, but they're there. Again, we can't pick and choose. Join me with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. So I wonder, is it a stretch to say that disowning Christ is comparable to desertion? That giving up when things get too tough is the equivalent of walking away from the war. That there are more important things than my personal safety, my personal security. There are bigger issues at stake here. That's why spiritual desertion is such a serious thing. And so in this second couplet, Paul warns of the very real consequences of disowning Christ. We too will be disowned. As I say, that's not an easy thing to accept but it's there and we have to take the warning seriously now we're not like the believers in the new testament in the first century we're not we're not here suffering for our faith like other believers are in north korea or parts of africa and elsewhere we might face the odd bit of mocking perhaps or discrimination but nothing comparable to real persecution. So what do these verses mean for us? Well, three general thoughts to leave you with. Firstly, that they are an acknowledgement, to use Jesus' words, that in this world you will have trouble. In this world you will have trouble. Some of us don't need reminding of this. Some of us believe it in a kind of theoretical way, but haven't really experienced it yet. And some of us maybe still carry this illusion that Christians are exempt in some way from suffering. But not according to Jesus. We will have trouble. That's a promise. That's another one you can stick on your fridge, but maybe you don't want to. So that's the first thought. The second thought is that we should not give up. In this life, Jesus offers his peace and the promise that he has overcome the worlds. And in the life to come, he offers the crown of life as we live and reign with him. Paul says, this is a trustworthy saying. This is something you can bank on. This is something you can depend on. This is a trustworthy saying, so don't give up. He says, don't give up. We shouldn't give up. If we feel as if our, our faith is under pressure for whatever reason, Whatever personal circumstances or family circumstances or other circumstances are giving us a bit of a wobble in our faith, and we feel we just feel tempted to jack it in, just to leave it to one side. The encouragement is to keep going, stick with it. It's worth it. And then thirdly, that we can rely on God keeping his promises. He is faithful. He is faithful. But I'd encourage you, next time we sing something like, Faithful you are, all your promises are yes and amen. I'd encourage you to just remember that his promises are not just to bless, but also to come in justice. The lion and the lamb, the two together. So three things. Acknowledging the trouble in the world, not giving up because of the promise of better things, relying on God to keep his promises, I believe we can do those three and we can do those three not in our own strength in Christ confident that he our saviour has gone before us and shown us the way. So he hurt as he watched our broken world and he heard its groaning long before he came to live on it. But for the joy that was set before him he endured the cross scorning its shame And sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And he trusted in God his Father in his darkest hour. There may be dark hours ahead for us. Perhaps just around the corner, coming very soon. Perhaps we're going through them at the moment. And I think what Paul would have us say, what the Spirit would would say to us through these verses today, is keep going. Don't, Don't jack in your faith just because you're going through a tough time. Keep going, persevere. There is a reward at the end. It's worth it. Stick with it. I'm going to um, pray. Perhaps the band would like to come up um, ready to play after I've prayed. I just want to pray along two lines, really. Um, Yeah, If, if you feel either of these... Threads of prayer are relevant to you, then please make them your own. But let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord, I want to pray first of all for anyone who is finding things really tough, and it's presenting a challenge to their faith. It's it's raising, it's placing a question mark over what they really believe. It may be you're going through a tough place in your workplace, in a relationship. Maybe it's tough financially. Maybe it's your health. Maybe it's the health of a friend or a member of the family. But in, in some way, maybe multiple ways, your faith is being stretched. And you're not sure you can carry on. You're not even sure that you want to carry on with your faith. It's just too hard to reconcile what's happening along with what you understand of God's love and grace. And if that's you, I pray for grace to to keep going, to keep going, to keep believing, to keep trusting. Even though things are dark, even though things are tough, I pray that you will hold on to what you know, that you'll trust God in the future and in the present just as you've trusted him in the past and that you'll be reassured of his presence with you along the way. And then, Lord, I want to pray that you'll increase our faith about the future. Lord, whether it's relevant to us tonight to take the encouragement from this verse or whether it's relevant for us tonight to take away the warding from this verse, I pray that we will believe deep down in our hearts that this is a trustworthy saying. That we'll anchor our lives on it, in it, to the extent that we will keep going because we believe that it's worth it at the end. We believe it was worth Abdul sacrificing his, his circumstances. We believe it's worth him living in poverty, that he's, he's not made a bad decision, and that nor have we, Lord. I pray that we'll be gripped by the reality, by the truth of that, and if necessary too, Lord, by the, the reality, the starkness of that warning that comes to us, that if we disown you, that you'll disown us. Lord, it's not, it's not a comfortable word but I pray you'll give us grace to receive it and grace to respond to your word tonight in whatever way is appropriate to us, please, Jesus. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Roger. In a moment, uh, we're going to finish with a song that, that helps us to...